0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff. And if you're joining us today, this is part two of a story that we started last week about my own personal 29 trails in 29 days challenge. If you missed the first half, you can definitely go back and pick that up. But if not, don't worry. You're not going to be too lost. So it's day 20 of my 29 trails in 29 days challenge. And I'm only 15 trails in, so halfway there. So today I drove to Conyers, Georgia, in the Georgia International Horse Park, home of the 1996 Olympic mountain bike course. It's the only Olympic course on U.S. soil, which is pretty exciting. But for those of us who live in the area, we sometimes take it for granted. There used to be an annual 24-hour race on the course, which was called 24 Hours of Conyers. And for those who watched the documentary 24 Solo... It's the same course where Chris Etoff races for his 7th World Championship 24-hour solo race. Shortly after the Olympics, the course fell into disrepair, and Leah tells me she couldn't even follow the trail just a year later. Fortunately, the local Sorba chapter picked up the ball and continues to maintain the trails today. Of course, there have been a few changes since the 1996 games, but you can still see the wooden TV camera platforms placed at strategic turns, and the yellow course boundaries are still painted onto the granite. For my ride, I decided to start on the steeplechase loop, which begins in the field beside the main parking lot. I've ridden here dozens of times, but for some reason, I started going the wrong direction on the trail, ignoring the wrong way signs along the way. Oh well, I only ran into one other mountain biker and a trail runner, and neither of them seemed to mind. This section of the course is wooded and generally pretty rolling, with only the occasional root garden to keep things interesting. Riding back across the field and past the parking lot, I crossed the divided parkway to access the granite loop. The street crossing is easily the most dangerous part of the ride. For some reason, the sharp, steep curbs were never cut for a bike crossing. Plus, someone decided to plant bulging evergreen trees in the median that make it impossible to see oncoming traffic. Peeking around a tree, I waited for the speeding cars to pass before sprinting for the other side of the road. The second half of the course is completely different from the first and features long stretches of exposed, decomposing granite tread and quick, lung-busting climbs. I always forget how much of a beating my hardtail takes on the granite. It's actually not like the slick rock at Moab at all. After ascending, then descending, and ascending and descending the granite again, the trail dips into the woods where I discovered some fresh trail reroutes full of tight twists and turns. The trail is really quite scenic here, though I doubt that thought went through the minds of the Olympians competing in 1996. The final climb back up the granite has always been a challenge for me. In fact, I guess you could say it's my arch nemesis. The climb itself isn't that remarkable. It's average length, moderately steep, and mostly smooth, but for some reason I've never been able to ride all the way to the top. I'm either too spent from the earlier climbs or I spin out on the roots at the top. And this ride wasn't any exception. At the top of the hill, my GPS said I had climbed more than a 1,000 feet total in just under 7 miles, which puts the course difficulty into perspective. Not too bad for a bike trail on the east side of Atlanta. Now I was 16 trails down, 13 more to go. After riding at the 1996 Olympic mountain bike course in Conyers, I kept going east and hit the Turner Lake Complex trails in Covington, Georgia. The trails are located right off Interstate 20, just behind the first shopping center you see on the south side of the highway, but they feel like they're hundreds of miles away. I was interested to ride at Turner Lake because all the single tracks reviewers seemed to agree that these trails were great beginner bike trails. Since it's been a while since I considered myself a beginner, I wanted to get a feel for the type of trail new mountain bikers like to ride. At the park, I was in a hurry to get going, and I ended up parking in the wrong spot at the administrative offices. I rode around the park a bit and jumped onto the first unpaved road I saw, which quickly turned into a utility easement that went nowhere. Backtracking, I made my way to the paved path and sniffed out the signed nature trail leading into the woods. The nature trail is a wide leaf and pine needle covered path that's mostly flat and fairly nondescript. Signage was good, which beginning riders will appreciate, but to me it was missing any level of excitement that might make new riders want to come back for more. I was the only one on the trail on a beautiful Friday afternoon, save for a woman with a young child. If you happen to live in the area, check the trails out for the scenery, but don't plan on getting too many miles in. Next up, Heritage Park in Oconee County is always a fun ride. I got to the trail at around 5 p.m. and I was worried it was too late to be hitting the trail. Fortunately, I saw another couple just getting started, so I hopped on my bike and booked it into the woods. Lee and I rode these trails for the first time about two years earlier, and I was surprised to find that not much had changed. There were a few reroutes, but for the most part, everything was still in place, though with much better flow and signage. After completing the majority of the red loop, I wanted to ride a little more, so at a familiar intersection, I set out in a different direction. After riding for about 10 minutes, I got a sinking feeling as I rode further and further from the car, while the sun sank lower and lower behind the trees. After a couple miles, I decided to call it quits and bombed down a double-track trail back toward the trailhead. Back on the single track, I was surprised to see a man hacking at a root on the trail with an axe. He said I was going the wrong direction, and I apologized. He said it was okay. Just local tradition, I guess. I thanked him for his work, and as I rode away, I think he said, I'm getting paid. I guess he was a park employee, hard at work, late on a Friday afternoon. The ride back up to the trailhead seemed longer than usual, and I cranked up the tempo even more, fearing my car might somehow get locked inside the gate at dusk. Fortunately, I made it back at 6.15, while the couple I started with were still out on the trail. From Heritage Park, I drove to Athens to meet with my brother for piles of barbecue at the butt hut, happy to be off the trail for just a few hours. Day 21. I didn't want to wake up for my ride that morning. As I closed my eyes in bed the night before, I saw flashes of single track, random trail features. It just wouldn't go away. It reminded me of my college days when I'd spend hours playing Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64, and would see myself gun extended wandering through maze-like worlds in search of my target. This 29 Trails in 29 Days experiment was starting to get intense. Just before 6 a.m., I woke up, scarfed down some cereal, and drove about an hour north of Atlanta to Dawson Forest. This was another new trail to me, and the promise of 20-ish miles of trails on a 10,000-acre preserve was just enough to get me going. I arrived at the trail at around 7.30 and saw a few other cars in the parking lot, most of them hunters. I checked the info board to make sure the trails were open, because they're periodically closed for special hunting days, and I started down the crunchy, frozen mud on the Blue Trail. Dawson Forest is owned by the city of Atlanta, purchased from Lockheed Martin in the 1970s. It was originally home to the Georgia Nuclear Aircraft Laboratory, and word is that a three-acre section had still had elevated levels of nuclear radiation as recently as the late 1990s. I only read this after I was riding. Maybe it was the fenced-in section near the main trailhead that I saw. Anyway, over the past few years, the city has considered building a new airport to relieve congestion at Hartsfield International, which is the busiest airport in the world. Or they've also talked about building a reservoir capable of pumping out 100 million gallons of water per day to the northern suburbs. Either way, I had to ride the trails in case they weren't around 10 years from now. Map in hand, I decided to ride the Blue Loop, a nine and a half mile trail that seemed to cover a good bit of the tract. After the first mile or so, I encountered some major horse damage on the red clay trails and was thankful the ground was still frozen during my ride. Some spots were so bad that I had to walk through the ice crusted mud holes and I could see other spots where the horses themselves slipped to find traction on the nasty trails. Don't horseback riders respect the trails enough to avoid them when they're wet? At the two and a half mile mark, I got to the Etowah River Ford, and I have to say I wasn't prepared for what I found. A swift moving, wide river crossing that was easily three to four feet deep in the middle. I actually couldn't see the bottom, so I don't know for sure. For about 10 seconds, I considered taking my shoes and socks off and crossing the river. Then I remembered the temperature was 30 degrees and that I'd be walking across the river bottom barefoot. Not wanting to climb back up the horse mud trail, I struck out on Railroad Road to join up with the Orange Trail instead. Before turning around, I rolled my tires in the water to clean the mud off, but found my disc brakes iced over as soon as I started to pedal. According to the trail use rules printed on the back of my map, horses and bicycles should not be ridden along roadsides unless it is marked as a designated trail found it strange that bikes would be restricted from the roads, so I promptly ignored the rule for the rest of my ride and didn't see a single vehicle along the way. The Orange Trail was mostly more of the same, muddy and cruddy. It wasn't just the mud and pock trail surfaces that bothered me. All the trails, quote, were really just wide, overgrown forest roads, it seemed. After rounding the lollipop portion of the Orange Trail, I took a shortcut on the road and saw a hunter, rifle in hand, emerging from one of the side trails. We exchanged greetings and headed in opposite directions. Back at the parking lot, the GPS said I rode a little over 12 miles, and it was easily my most miserable ride yet. I tried to imagine the trail in better conditions, the summer perhaps, but I decided even in the summer I probably won't be back. It was still early in the day, and I had plans to bag two more trails before the sun went down. Rambo is the Roswell Alpharetta mountain bike organization. And as far as bike club acronyms go, this is one of my favorites. The club is best known for the trails at Big Creek, where there's miles of single track, a short downhill course, and even a new pump track. But Rambo also builds and maintains the trails at Central Park and Cumming, which is closed to bikes now, but, but it was my next stop after Dawson Forest that day. Central Park is located less than a half mile from Georgia Highway 400, which makes it super accessible. Stopped off at McDonald's on the opposite side of the interchange for two Egg McMuffins and promptly ate them both in the car during the three-minute drive to the trailhead. Navigating the ball fields and ocean-sized parking lot, I located the kiosk with a map of the trail and a sign indicating that the trails were in fact open. The main three-mile bike trail loop is directional based on the day of the week. This is a great idea in my opinion. It allows riders to go faster without fear of encountering traffic traveling the other direction, And it also allows the trails to wear in both directions, minimizing certain types of trail damage. The only thing that bothers me is that many clubs choose to alternate based on the day of the week rather than odd even days. Signage is more confusing, and riders who can only ride certain days of the week are stuck riding the same direction every time. Not only that, the trail still gets uneven wear because one of the directions is ridden four days of the week and the other direction is just ridden three. In my opinion, the odd-even system is tops, but then again, I'm no trail management expert. The main loop started off fast, but within the first mile or so, I found myself riding in mucky orange clay. I slowed my speed and tiptoed through the mud to avoid damaging the trail in the lower sections, and at the power line, I chose the moderate trail, which was in much better shape. Emerging from this section beside the highway, I missed the turn, back across the power lines and ended up riding utility easement for about half a mile before I realized I was off track. Back on the trail, I found a newly flagged and raked section that was twisting and fun. At a couple points along the trail, I noticed signs directing walkers and runners to stay off the trail. These days, trail running is becoming more and more popular, and this was the first time I had seen a trail that was closed to runners. Guess it's time for trail runners to organize their own work parties. My final stop of the day was Big Creek Trail in Alpharetta, Georgia. I actually started riding the trails at Big Creek about 12 years earlier. And back in those days, we called it Mansell since we accessed the trails from an office building parking lot off Mansell Road. The trails were rough then, completely unofficial, but it was the best riding close to my parents' house. Even in those days, there were a few bridges and some downhill trails running straight down the steepest slopes, and we always had a blast riding there. Today, the trails are completely legit with excellent signage and are rated from beginner to most difficult. These trails are also directional by day, and to ride all the single track, you'll need to traverse some sections more than once. Along the backside, I found fresh single track winding its way to the top of the downhill gully run, which was a nice surprise. Heading back to the completely packed trailhead, I passed by the pump track, which was closed for the winter. It was great to see so many different types of riders here, from new riders to weekend warriors, and from spandex-wearing cross-country dudes to downhill adrenaline junkies. Rambo has created a special place in the burbs for everyone to enjoy, a model for communities around the southeast and beyond. After riding six trails in less than 24 hours on Friday and Saturday, I was actually glad to have a break Sunday morning before driving up to Gainesville, Georgia. Fortunately, the weather was amazing with blue skies and temperatures in the low 70s for my afternoon rides. The mountain bike trail at Gainesville College is a a three-and-a-half-mile loop starting at a parking lot on the backside of the campus. I had never ridden here before despite riding nearby Chicopee Woods dozens of times, and frankly, I didn't have high hopes. I assumed the trails were probably bootleg single track created by rowdy college students looking for a way to blow off steam. So the Sorba trailhead sign was definitely reassuring. There were half a dozen cars with bike racks in the parking lot already, and I watched as a mom and dad started out on the trail with their two young sons. Turns out the Gainesville College trails are a perfect introduction to single track for kids and families. With only a couple tricky, rooty sections, the smooth trails never climb or descend steeply, And all the creek crossings feature smooth, wide bridges. I'm guessing the length of the loop, three and a half miles, is just long enough to give kids a sense of accomplishment without being overly difficult. With zero bailout points, it also teaches new riders the power of perseverance. I had a good time on the trail, and I saw at least four or five groups with kids under 10 years old riding mountain bikes. I can't wait till my own daughter is old enough to ride a mountain bike, and this will be one of the first places I take her off-road. Next, I headed over to Chicopee Woods. I had every intention of just clocking a few miles at Chicopee Woods on Sunday and calling it a day. After all, I didn't set any ground rules at the beginning of my 29 trail challenge, saying how many miles I had to ride at each trail, or if I even had to ride the entire trail. I set out on the tortoise trail and felt surprisingly good, passing riders as the trail wound slowly up the hill. Coming down the backside was a blast, and it was then that I decided to enjoy the ride instead of worrying about how I was going to get to 29 trails before Saturday. On the red trail loop, I passed a couple on a tandem mountain bike, and I had two thoughts. One, why does the guy always ride in the front of a tandem bike? He's usually taller and heavier, which means the woman is in the back and can't see anything, and he weighs down the front end. I guess it has something to do with us guys wanting to be in control all the time. My second thought was, if two fast guys were riding a tandem together, would they be faster and more efficient than a single fast guy by himself? I mean, they're economizing on wheel weight and other bike parts, but then again, they aren't nearly as agile. Now that would be a fun race to watch. From the red tail loop, I continued onto white tail outer loop and took the Copperhead Gap trail option. There were at least a couple sections on Copperhead Gap that flowed so well that it was as if God himself had built the trail. Then again, there were a few short root gardens that were clearly the work of the devil. So it all balanced out. Good versus evil, but in the end, good definitely wins here. At the top of Copperhead Gap, I got back onto Whitetail and continued around the outer loop. I stopped to check out a memorial I had never noticed before for a plane crash that happened in that spot back in 1995. As I crested Champagne Hill near the end of the loop, I was in the mood for a little more riding, so I jumped onto the inner loop trail. Didn't seem familiar at all. Perhaps I'd missed it all the other times I had ridden Chicopee before. I found more fun, flowy single track to rival Copperhead Gap, and was glad I took the option. By the end of the day, I'd clocked about 17 miles of single track at Chicopee Woods in under two hours, which felt great. Aside from a couple short connector trails, the only loop I skipped was the coyote loop, which hardly anyone ever rides anyway. I also managed to stay in my big ring the entire time, which would bode well for my training thus far. Less than a week and six trails to the Snake Creek Gap time trial number two. Day 22. I had hoped it wouldn't come to this. Before my 29 trail experiment began, I wrote out a list of all the trails I wanted to ride, and the list definitely didn't include Arabia Mountain. Not that it isn't a great place to ride, it's just that I had hoped to avoid riding anywhere that wasn't mostly single track. Not only is Arabia Mountain path not single track, it's also paved. Yuck. With just a few days to go to my deadline, And hard rains overnight i can decisively cross off fort yargo blankets creek and the chattanooga area trails off my to-do list it just wasn't going to happen instead i was looking up dirt roads and paved paths and trying to figure out which trails drain the best so i could get to 29 trails before saturday so i decided to do what everyone else does when it rains i stayed off the trails and jumped on the pavement the arabia mountain path starts in downtown lithonia georgia and runs through Panola Mountain State Park. The scenery is great, and the path isn't as straight and flat as rail trails like the Silver Comet, which is also a decent choice if it's raining and you want to protect your bike from gritty fire road rides. Anyway, I started at the Stonecrest Mall parking lot and rode toward Panola State Park. It was cold and misty at the start, and conditions wouldn't improve during my ride, or the rest of the day for that matter. Still, I passed several walkers, but mostly had the trail to myself. There's one section where the path traverses an exposed granite section, and just for a second I felt like I was riding a real mountain bike trail, but then it was over. I decided to turn around after 30 minutes, which put me right at Highway 212. I didn't make it to the abandoned golf course at the end of the line this time. I'm told someday there will be single track mountain bike trails in that area, but even if there were today, I wouldn't be able to ride them because of the rain. Back at the car, my GPS said I rode almost 15 miles in an hour. A good workout, I guess. I just wish I could have ridden on dirt. Day 24. On most Tuesday nights, I go for an in-town night ride on the east side of Atlanta, and it's often the highlight of my week. Some Tuesdays, there are more than a dozen mountain bikers. Other nights, it's just one or two of us. We ride all year long and in pretty much all conditions, unless it's raining, and grab pizza and beer after the ride. I factored the Tuesday night rides into my 29-day schedule but out of four Tuesdays, every single ride was rained out or snowed out. Unprecedented. So, on day 24, after at least an inch of rain fell the night before, I rode to three of the trails we typically ride on Tuesday nights. None of the trails are very long, most are just one to two miles of single track, but there's a surprising variety within them all. With 45 miles of road riding between each trail, I had a good workout ahead of me. I was a little worried things would be completely wet and muddy but every one of the trails was in great shape better than many of the trails i rode last week that had four days to dry after a rain the mason mill trails are the closest ones to my house a couple years ago the county installed a paved path right through the middle of some choice single track but somehow the best stuff survived much of it just crisscrosses the path now if you know where to go in the park you can easily ride six miles a single track without too many repeats making this one of the biggest trail systems I know of inside the Atlanta perimeter. Next up was Peavine Creek. It's crazy how different mountain bike trails can seem at night versus during the day. Thinking back, I was pretty sure I had never ridden Peavine Creek during the day, and that day I was struck by just how amazing these trails were, especially given their location. With steep climbs, well-groomed single track, and tricky, narrow bridge crossings, this was a fun place to play on the bike. I was amazed at how dry everything was after the rain. Few of the engineered trails I've ridden drain as well as this unofficial trail network does. Finally, I hit the trails at Morningside Nature Preserve. These trails were constructed with mountain biking in mind, thanks to Atlanta's Sorba chapter. The one-mile main loop was machine-cut and flows better than anything else in town. It's also officially open for night riding whenever you want. Posted park hours are from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. A new suspension bridge had been recently constructed, though unfortunately it wasn't bike friendly. I didn't see a single person, walker or biker, during my ride that day, which was surprising given the urban fringe location at each of these trail systems. I clocked almost 21 miles round trip from my house, which was a great training ride for sure. Bagging three more trails so close to home made it even better. Just two more trails to go. Day 26. I can't tell you where I rode on day 26. It's a secret. No, it's not my own single track stash. Plenty of people know about these trails, but we're just not supposed to talk about them. Across the U.S., there are easily hundreds, if not thousands, of bike trails that are secret for any number of reasons. For example, trails might be on private property, and the landowner doesn't want a lot of people riding them for liability reasons. Other trails are secret because the trail builder doesn't have permission to use the land and is worried about being shut down or cited for trespassing. I don't know the whole backstory about the secret trails I rode that day, but what I can tell you is that someone puts a ton of time into building and maintaining the approximately 10 miles of single track. I had been living in the area for almost two years before I even found out about the trails, which shows you how closely these secrets are often kept. Singletracks has been publishing mountain bike trail information online for more than 15 years now, and we're constantly fielding requests to modify or remove trail information. These days, it's hard to keep anything hidden from the internet, unless those in the know have an incentive to keep things quiet, like miles and miles of Singletrack. Although there's no way to study and track these things, my hunch is that exposure is ultimately good for some secret trails. Once the community recognizes the value of the trails, individuals and groups can work in the open to protect or enhance them. In some cases, local bike clubs might get the opportunity to work out agreements with landowners who might be open to this type of use, if only they were asked. Or a group of mountain bikers could even publicly raise the money to purchase the land outright. Several years ago, Leah and I found out about a secret trail that started behind one of the bike shops in Stowe, Vermont. We had a blast riding the trails, but were told not to post photos or reviews online. Then, a couple years ago, someone posted that very trail to Single Tracks, Stowe Town Forest. And from the sounds of it, the trails are completely legit now with an official name, maps, blazes, and everything. Maybe it was because the trails started out in secret that they were ultimately able to flourish, but who knows? Day 27. Ah, the beach. Such a fitting place to end my 29-trail journey. But if visions of balmy breezes, fruity drinks with umbrellas, and bronzed bodies come to mind, I hate to disappoint you. My ride that day took place under cloudy skies and 30-degree temperatures in Clayton County, Georgia, by myself and hundreds of miles from the closest ocean. Trails at the beach are located on the grounds of the 1996 Olympic Beach Volleyball Venue, south of Atlanta near Jonesboro. I first rode these trails back in the late 1990s, so the trails have been around for at least 10 or 15 years now, created and maintained by the Southside Mountain Bike Association. On Thursday, I found the trails to be pretty well-defined, despite heavy leaf cover. The signage was a little confusing and inconsistent, though at one time the trails were rated from beginner to advanced. Even though I had ridden these trails at least half a dozen times before, I managed to find sections I didn't know existed. Most of these out-of-the-way trail sections were pretty overgrown, because they're so hard to find, and some were covered in debris from park maintenance operations. I even came across an old rusting crane where the forest literally grew up around it, perhaps left over from pre-Olympic construction. As I packed up my bike after the ride, I felt a little disappointed that the journey had come to an end on such an average, familiar trail. Of course, I'll never stop exploring new trails, but I don't know if I'll ever have the opportunity to ride 29 mountain bike trails in a month's time again. If I do, it certainly won't be in January. I'll make sure my next challenge takes place during the summer, or at least someplace warm and dry. But wait, the challenge wasn't quite over yet. Although I bagged trail number 29, my challenge wouldn't be done until I completed the Snake Creek Gap time trial number 2 on day 29. Since I already rode that trail at the start of the challenge, it wouldn't count as a unique trail. Bring on the snake! With rainy weather dogging me throughout my 29 trail challenge, I was not so secretly hoping the rain would actually work to my advantage Saturday. In Atlanta, we had more than an inch of rain the night before, and my hope was the course would be so waterlogged the race would have to be postponed or canceled. It was still raining when I woke up at 5.30 in the morning Saturday, and I used my windshield wipers for the entire hour and a half drive to Dalton. Day 29 was going to be my muddiest yet on the bike. I arrived with plenty of time to spare on Saturday and met up with Dustin and also some of the faster mustache guys before the race. The rain downgraded into mist by the time we got on the bus, and during the 45-minute ride to the start, we actually got a couple glimpses of sunshine. With temperatures in the upper 30s and lower 40s, perhaps it wouldn't be such a bad day after all. My biggest concern was the river crossing at the two-mile mark. Would it be a foot deep, or would I need to break out my trash bag hip waders? The forest road started out muddy with huge puddles that became unavoidable early on. Reaching the stream crossing, I saw dozens of riders on both sides in various stages of foot undress, while a few hardy souls were riding right through the current. Things didn't look too deep, and I figured the puddles would get me just as wet as the stream, so I rode right through. The water wasn't nearly as cold as I thought it would be, and it felt great to pass so many riders at once. I managed to ride the entire first half of the course without stopping once, which was a huge improvement over my first time trial. Clearly, my 29 trail training regimen left me with stronger legs. On the climbs, I passed several riders, though on the downhills, those same riders often returned the favor and passed me back. On the final whoop-dee-doo descent to Highway 136, the guy behind me executed a textbook four-cross inside corner slide pass. The trail leveled out at this point, and I encouraged the guy to take the lead. He had, after all, earned his position. To which he replied, I have no chain. Apparently his chain snapped a couple miles back and he was coasting all the way down. Even more impressive. At the sag stop, I sat down and ate a Snickers bar and half a banana. After about five minutes, I was starting to feel cold, so I hopped back on the bike for the ascent up John's Mountain. For some reason, the climb seemed much longer Saturday than it had the month before. At several points, I thought I had reached the top, only to be disappointed with more climbing. Eventually the trail pointed down for good and I was stoked for the stream crossings at the bottom to wash the outer layers of mud off my bike. Climbing up from Johns Creek, I hit the second and final sag at the top of Pocket Road. It seemed even colder at this stop, so I quickly ate another Snickers bar and a whole banana, ready to get this thing finished. My time was looking pretty good so far, but I still had 8 miles and the most technically difficult part of the course to go. Riding this section of the pinhoti Trail for the first time the month before, I had told myself it really wasn't as bad as I had heard. Sure, it was rocky, but most of it was rideable, and the really bad parts seemed mostly short-lived. Somehow this time, the rocks got worse. Perhaps it was all the rain that exposed new rock knuckles poking out of the ground, or maybe it was all the grunting and complaining of the riders behind me. Whatever it was, the trail was slowly grinding away all my strength, I wasn't cramping yet, but the miles seemed to tick by in slow motion. Where was the damn tower at the end? I passed a few riders on the hike-a-bike up the wall and stuck with about half a dozen guys for the next couple miles. I imagined I saw the tower once on a nearby hilltop, but it turned out to be a mirage. Apparently, I wasn't the only one seeing things. The riders around me were mumbling about the same thing. By the time I finally decided to stop looking for the tower, there it was. Salvation. I zoomed down the road to the finish, ready to get out of my muddy clothes and soggy socks. I grabbed a bowl of chili and a beer and tucked in beside the campfire for my post-race recovery. My official time was 4 hours 37 minutes, more than 39 minutes faster than my first run in January. I'm not sure if that's so much of an endorsement of the 29 trail training plan, as it is better race strategy. But either way, I'll take it. My goal is to finish the second time trial in four and a half hours. Which was the average for the first race. And by that measure, I was just three minutes off my goal because everyone else had slowed down by about four minutes over the first race. At the end of my 29 trails in 29 days challenge, I had ridden for 36 and a half hours, covered nearly 300 miles at about seven miles an hour, climbed almost 30,000 feet in average temperatures of 45 degrees. It took a lot of driving to make all this happen, too, as I covered 1,600 miles in my car during those 29 days. It's hard to imagine having the opportunity to do something like this again, though maybe one day when I'm retired. Exploring new mountain bike trails will just never get old for me. To see photos from my 29 Trails in 29 Days Challenge, be sure to search single tracks for 29 Trails. That's all we have this week. Talk to you again next week. Peace.